You're listening to the weekly Joel Klatt segment podcast. Listen to it live every Wednesday between 8 and 8.30 a.m. during the football season. Presented exclusively by Audi Flatirons in Broomfield. Exceeding your experience from the first mile to the last. Time for our Wednesday visit with Joel Klatt, Fox Sports college football analyst and our good buddy presented by Audi Flatirons. Joel, Chad Andrus is in for Evans this week. Stink is here, and, and we're having the discussion. You're a good guy to ask about this. Um as disappointing as the the talent in the production at the quarterback position for the Broncos has been, um, I'm equally disappointed that the Vance Joseph regime, the Vic Fangio regime, has not shown any sign that they developed Paxton Lynch or Drew Locke in any way, shape, or form. What What's the biggest challenge? How hard is it for an NFL coaching staff to develop a quarterback when you can't get one of the uber-talented guys? Well, that's a. I mean, this is a. This is an age-old question, right? Is is how much of quarterback play is development, and how much is innate? And I think what you're what you're seeing is is that there are traits for quarterbacks that are innate that are just prerequisites. They they've got to be there in order for any sort of progression or development to happen. Uh, one of those is is the ability to process information and to understand what you what you're seeing. The ability to be a good decision maker. Um, that this is something that has to be innate in you as a quarterback if you are going to develop into a player that can become something that that leads a team to a Super Bowl. And you know, obviously, there are things talent wise and and skill wise that have to be there as well, but. You know, people just think like, well, I can teach this kid to make all the reads and oh, I can develop everything out of him as long as he's got this strong arm and can run around. And I actually don't think that that's the case. Uh, generally, what you see and what I've seen with quarterbacks is is guys that can process information and have the ability to make good decisions. You can teach them how to play um, with better rhythm. You can teach them how to play with better footwork. You can teach them how to use that ability to make good decisions in order to attack the defense and where to put your eyes first. Uh, but that process of information, uh, it just doesn't seem to be there. It wasn't there for Paxton Lynch, and it doesn't seem to be there for Drew Locke. I don't know the way that you guys watch it, but when, when I see him play, for, for a guy that's been in the league as long as he has, he just doesn't feel like he has a grasp of what's going on on the field, what's happening across the line of scrimmage from him uh, from a defensive structure standpoint. And, and that's something that, you know, you can teach till you're blue in the face. It's just got to be innate. It's got to be in him that he understands how to process that information and, and what to do with that information. See, I, I think that that is true um, regardless of position. And here's the thing I guess I would ask That's a good you. Point. I think I would ask you, like, it never looks the same. And you can you can talk about this, you know, from, from the position of quarterback. But it never looks the same as it did when you're sitting in a classroom watching it on film, when you're That's actually right. on the field. It's completely different. And it's your ability to process information when you have a muddled or muddy look. And your ability to do that and take that onto the field, because there's a lot of guys. I've played with a lot of guys that can tell me in the classroom exactly what their responsibility is, but then they get on the field and it doesn't quite look the same. And 
they are process, you know, their analysis or paralysis by analysis. So how much, how much more difficult is it to take it from the classroom, Joel, onto the football field, especially at the quarterback position? Well, I, I would actually say it's, it's the most difficult at the quarterback position because I think, as you know, for the quarterback, there's no live reps until you're in a game. Mm-hmm. Like you, you cannot replicate the position until you're in a game. You can take, Eight million seven on seven reps. It never looks like that when you're dropping back in a game. Now there are times when it can look cleaner. There are times that that I have a, I would actually argue that the game is is a little bit easier. But then there are times when, like you said, the reaction has to be there, and you've got to process something, you know, in the in the snap of a finger, in a moment, in an instant. And and some guys can, and some guys cannot. Um, I, I do find it fascinating. I wish I had an, a, a better answer of why, because you could avoid picking guys that don't know how to process, process information. You could avoid the pitfalls of waiting through two and three years of seeing a guy struggle before you actually move on. Like it, it's just, you don't know until a guy is out there because of what I was saying about replicating the position. It's, you cannot replicate it. You can take live BP in baseball. You can take, you know, you, as a goaltender, which is, I think, can equate at times to the level of importance of being a quarterback in terms of carrying a team in a professional sport. You can replicate live looks at, at, you know, the, the, the hockey puck and, and guys in front of you and things of that nature. You cannot replicate it in practice what a quarterback is seeing and feeling in a pocket, in a live pocket environment, in a charged environment, in an environment in which a defense can really do whatever they want, um, uh, you know, those 11 guys in their structure. So I think it's really hard to, to predict what a guy is going to do, and you don't really know until he's out there. Okay, so we all want the home run. We want the grand slam, right? Everybody wants the, the dream shot at Aaron Rodgers or Russell Wilson or, or whoever it may be, an established quarterback that you know can can raise the tide and, and lift all boats. But that's really, really hard to pull off. Um, so if we if we look at that and say that doesn't happen for the Broncos, right? You're, you're the best college football analyst in the country and you've seen – every player play and quarterback. If George Payton is going to evaluate a Kenny Pickett, a Matt Corral, uh, or anyone else going forward, I mean, based on what you've seen, what would be your plan of attack as to how to address the position going forward if it's not one of the the superstars that's already in the league? Well, (laughs) you kind of took my answer right away from me. (laughs) This is not the year year that you're going to get that guy. At least I don't. I don't estimate in, in the draft. There are some guys that are that are talented and I think might have that ability, um, but it's it's certainly not a draft class that that you would look at and salivate over like we've had in the last few years. Um, there's no Joe Burrow out there. Uh, there's not even a Mac Jones. You know, to be quite honest with you, and, and we had a couple of guys even ahead of Mac Jones last year, Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields that were, I think, no-brainers. Um, so it's, 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 it's not a great draft. Now, having said that, I, I'm a believer in Kenny Pickett. I think that when you see his game, it translates the best because he's played the most. And you can see that he processes information. You can see that this is a guy that 
like we were talking about, Stink, he makes good decisions and, and, and he has, he has operated an offense that's closest to what you will see someone have to operate from a mental capacity standpoint, uh, in the National Football League. So I'm, I'm, I'm a Kenny Pickett guy, but Matt Corral is probably the more physical gifted player. And what we've seen is that if he is the guy that can process information and, and he played for a guy in Jeff Levy at Ole Miss, and that offense is pretty good. And Lane Kiffin is, is a guy offensively that is going to give the quarterback a lot. Now, one thing that those guys will do is that they'll create big wins for their quarterback. And those wins mean that you're not going to have to make a play on your own all that much because those wins end up getting created through the schematic X's and O's of the play calling. Having said that, I think he's incredibly gifted. But, gee, uh, I mean, I'm hemming and hawing because this is not a strong class. I think that you would have to go after one of those established players like a Rodgers, like a Russell Wilson, if you're really thinking about making – a strong Super Bowl push in the next year or two. Uh, I, I gotta so I gotta ask you this because this is something that has been kind of stuck in my craw here the last couple of days because I keep hearing people talk about Vic Fangio and whether he's going to come back to be the head coach next year, and they base it on the premise of he's a really good defensive coordinator, so we don't want to lose him as the coordinator. Like I feel like I'm on crazy pills, like. You, did you hire him to be a good D coordinator or hire him to be a head coach? He's not a good head coach. So, like, does, for you, like, you see what's going on here offensively and defensively. Does that make that, that argument make any sense in your mind? No. Not whatsoever. And And what, like, here's what I don't understand. It's like, okay. Like, I don't disagree. And, Mark, I don't think you disagree. Like, from a defensive standpoint. Right. Denver's pretty good. So let's say you keep him. And what do you do? Demote him? Take away his ability to hire an offensive staff? Totally neuter him as far as his leadership ability in front of the 53? I think we talked about this a little bit last week. Like, you can't do that. He's, if you're the head coach, you, you have to be the CEO of the organization per se, or the 53 roster, at least in the NFL standpoint. And, and I like, I don't, so I don't understand how he stays in particular, because you're going to have to take all these hires away from him. He's not going to go hire his own offensive coordinator. So you're going to make that decision for him. So what, you're going to be the GM sitting in the clubhouse. Like I, this, this, it doesn't, this does not feel like it works. I just, I, you can't create a scenario for me in which you keep Vic and yet he retains the ability to be a quality leader as a head coach. What do you do? Fire him as the head coach and keep him as the coordinator and hire another head coach. Well, then that head coach, would he choose Vic to be his D? None of it makes sense. And, and because of what you said in your question, you hired him to do a job. He has not done that job. So it doesn't matter what he's done outside of that. If he hasn't done that job, then he needs to, needs to be removed from that job that you hired him to try to succeed at, which he has not. Joel, I want to take you in another direction while we have you here. We don't get into it very often on the program, but uh, you're the resident expert, and um, you're the last great 
quarterback that played at CU. And something's going on up there. Now I think nine recent transfers and like uh, I think up to 14 over the course of the last season into the portal. And I understand that's a big thing in college football now. It's different than it's ever been. But the combination of the players leaving and looking ahead at next year's schedule where, quite honestly, I mean, they play at Arizona. Maybe they win that game. You look at the rest of it, and it is an absolute bear uh, across the board week in and week out. I mean, it is going to be a really, really rough go for Carl Durrell's program. What What's going on at CU, and, and how can this get turned around? Well, it is not unique to CU, I will say that, and so I don't want to make it spe- like a specific CU problem. I think that the transfer portal is something that everyone have, is having to deal with. Um, and, and there are, you know, I don't want to say mass exoduses, but large-scale exoduses from almost every single program because these are 18 to 22 year olds and they get upset and they think that the grass is greener on the other side. And it's one of the problems with the transfer portal. There's no doubt about it. Having said that. Yeah. I mean, Colorado has really struggled in a few areas. I think personally, and I might be off base on this, but I think personally that it's, incredibly difficult to convince somebody from outside the state who's a really good player to go and to believe in your program unless the best players from inside your state also believe that it can be a good program. If the people closest to it are are not committing to it, then I think it becomes very difficult to go out there and get the ancillary pieces that are needed, in particular because the recruiting base in Colorado is not going to fill every hole. But you got to go out there and you got to fill those holes. Well, how do you convince a kid from Texas or Southern California that your program is going to be where you believe it's going to be if the players within your own state don't believe it or aren't committing to it? Um, maybe this is just because I, I grew up in the area, but I, I, I will tell you, and, and this is borne out through, through years and years of, of Colorado football, that that program is at its best when they get the two to five best players in the state that can play at this level. I know that there are kids committing to Oklahoma and Ohio State and other big-time programs. Those players have got to end up in Boulder. Um, and, and when you've got a culture of, of lo- local foundational pieces, generally those guys don't leave because you didn't pull them away from another state. And so once you've got those foundational pieces, what you have is, is you've got a better buy-in within your program. And when you've got that, then you've got these ancillary pieces from out of state that show up and then they buy in. And then I, at least personally, I think that the overall feeling of the program is better. So maybe it's just because I'm a local kid. Maybe it's because my dad was a high school coach or my brother still is a high school coach, but I believe that the foundation of the 10 or 15, when talking about all four years, 10, 15, maybe 20 guys of really good players and real foundational leadership guys have to be from in the state. And I think that the fact that they have failed at getting a lot of these D1 prospects that go to other Power 5 institutions, and some of them very good Power 5 institutions, is a problem. That Their emphasis has to be on getting those guys because I think it fixes two things. It fixes your ability to go recruit outside of the state, and it also fixes your ability to retain players 
because of the foundation and the culture set by local guys versus outside guys. Uh, Joel, we had a, a, a passing of a legend uh, yesterday in John Madden. I don't know if you've ever had you ever had any connection or any stories about John Madden or what he meant to you over the course of your football life. Uh, for me, uh, I knew as soon as he showed up to one of my games, you know, he showed up to uh, one of our practices. You're like, I mean, I wanted to get his autograph, right? He was just legendary in the broadcasting world and the coaching world. But did you ever have any encounters with him and and um, your thoughts on, on John Madden? Unfortunately, I, I didn't have any encounters with him. His health was already, you know, deteriorating to the point where he, ha- he wasn't around much once I – you know, got to, to Fox and started working with my current producer. But that is my connection. My current producer's name is Chuck McDonald. He's fantastic. He's one of the best in, in football. And the reason he's one of the best in football is because he was John Madden's broadcast associate for the better part of five or six years. He, in fact, one fall rode the bus with John, and he's got all sorts of stories about working uh, for John and the demanding nature in which John had of, of, of the people around him and, and how much that he loved football and respected the sport and respected the, the men that play the sport. And, and because of the way that he cut his teeth and, and views the game and respects the game because of John, you know, that makes our broadcast what it is. And so it's something where while I've never spent any time with John, his influence on just my career because of his his influence on my producer, Chuck McDonald, um, you know, I don't think that you can measure it. And the way that I view the game is, is in large, well, in large part because of the way Chuck views the game, which is the way John viewed the game. So, um, you know, he, he is one of one. And, and what I loved about John growing up, watching your games, Mark, and, and all of you, you know, amazing players that John was calling your games, is that John was the everyman. And you just wanted to sit and listen to him and listen to him call football because it made you feel comfortable. Not like he was talking down to you, but like he was just sitting there loving the game along with you. And that's something that, you know, I think all of us that do this, need to try to aspire to and I know that it's very difficult uh, because he's one of one and an absolute legend but the other part of what I just absolutely appreciated about John Madden is as first a consumer and now looking back on his career is that that guy was all Madden every week he never took a week off he always prepared and always gave his best regardless of the matchup and that's something that I certainly try to do and Chuck and I have talked a lot about so um, you know, rest in peace, big guy, because he, he made, in large part, what we know of as football on television today. Well, Joel, uh, we certainly appreciate the extended time today. And I will say this, not just because, uh, uh, you know, I know you and I've worked with you a, a little bit. I think you're the best college football analyst in the country. I wish you were doing the games on Friday, um, or at least one of them, right? Um, give us a quick breakdown, college football playoff or invitational, as I like to call it, um, uh, of what's going to happen in the in the two semifinals. Well, first of all, that's very nice of you to say. So thank you. And it's good to talk to you again. So there's no doubt about that. But um, really quickly, 30,000-foot view, this is what you have to, to look for for the Alabama-Cincinnati game, is that football is all about matchups, and Alabama is very strong at their quarterback position with Bryce Young and then the wide receivers with Jamison Williams and John Mechie where they have not quite been to their their recent standards is at the line of scrimmage, 
uh, and in particular on the defensive side. Now, Will Anderson is a terrific defensive player, there's no doubt, but they haven't been quite the defense that we thought that they were going to be during the course of this season, in large part due to injuries and, and a lot of extenuating factors. Cincinnati is veteran team. They're good at the line of scrimmage. They've got a veteran quarterback in Desmond Ritter. And they've got two guys that I think actually match up really well with where Bama is strong. They've got a guy that's going to be a first-round cornerback taken in the draft. His name Ahmad Gardner, Sauce Gardner. And then they've got the Thorpe Award winner on the other side, the other corner, Kobe Bryant. Um, those two guys and what they do against Mechie and against Jamison Williams is very important. That's one of the reasons I think that's game, that game is going to be a lot closer than people think it's going to be is because Cincinnati's strength is exactly where Alabama is strong, so the matchup is actually good for the Bearcats. I'll take Bama by three in that game. And the, in the nightcap, this Michigan game, this Michigan-Georgia game is going to be a phenomenal game. Now, I have heard some rumblings that the best – uh, secondary player for Michigan, Daxton Hill, is struggling with COVID and potentially is out. I would hate it if that's the case, um, but we'll see exactly what's going to go on. That's just kind of like through the grapevine type of stuff. Uh, I actually like Michigan in this game. Their offense is way more explosive than you would think it was. They've got 17 plays of 50 yards or more during the course of the season. That's more than anybody in the country. And one thing where Georgia has struggled, one area where Georgia has struggled is in their secondary. If their front seven can't dominate, and Michigan, by the way, is varied enough in their run game and they do enough in the play action where you can't just dominate against uh, Michigan with your front seven, I think Michigan will have some success. And I actually like Michigan to win this game over Georgia in particular because Georgia uh, is just not quite what they need to be at the quarterback position with Stetson Bennett. Joel, we always appreciate it. Thanks for the uh, extended visit today, and uh, enjoy uh, the college games this weekend and uh, what's left of the the NFL season for the Broncos to play it out. You got it, boys. Have a good one, okay? Thank you, everybody. Happy New Year. Joel Clapp, presented by Audi Flatiron. Hello, this is Ryan Watson, Vice President and General Manager of Audi Flatirons and Audi Boulder Service. When was the last time a dealership delivered the experience you were looking for? Have you ever felt that buying a car was solely about making the sale? It should be about the relationship, beginning with your commitment to do business with us and continuing through the years to follow. Our team is dedicated to exceeding your expectations from the first mile to the last. Come see us in person or visit us online at AudiFlatirons.com or AudiBoulderService.com.